Well, I, uh, you know, I was thinking about um, what kind of point I might like to make in a short amount of time. And I think there's one, one thing I'd like to talk about. Um, it has to do with uh, our perceptions, uh, our achievements, what we can do and what we believe. Um, when I listened to Dr. Teller this morning, uh, I was a little bit afraid. Uh, I realized that he was very powerful, but I realized he had some things that I felt were inconsistencies. He said, we must cooperate with the Russians, and then when asked, he said, cooperation won't work. He said, we must uh, produce a defensive system that will really work, yet he's a scientist, and I know, and I think we all know, that nothing is perfect, and that uh, you cannot assure that anything will work, just as an artificial heart valve broke in Dr. Clark. Uh, there was a defect in that valve, which we later found the first time it had ever happened that soon in our program. You cannot assure that there won't be a defect in, a, in an anti-ballistic missile system or anything like that. I think what, what I want to say is that we should learn to look at the facts and look at the issues and not learn to believe what people tell us to believe. Uh, Dr. Teller said we should have openness, uh, we should have a certain lack of secrecy, yet he was standing there to tell us to believe his conclusion, not to examine the facts and make up our own minds. I think that... I think the, the key to success is for us all to recognize that really we're basically alike that uh, I may have been identified as the developer of an artificial heart, and I may receive a lot of notice for that, and I may enjoy it very much, but it still is not true. It still is something that's come about by a, a great amount of effort by very many people, and we have a tendency to emotionally tag certain labels on such and such a person, say, you did this, now tell us what to believe. So I hope to tell you, uh, don't believe me. And I'd like to ask maybe Bill DeVries to come up next and make some comments that he wishes to make. It really is my privilege to come and talk to you. I, I feel a bit inadequate from all the famous people talking, uh, but I, I, I do have something that I would like to say. It's. Uh, I feel a bit like the story of the old wizened blacksmith who was uh, making his horseshoes and hewing them out of red-hot metal and then putting them in the water to cool. And he saw the village smart aleck, a young kid walking along, and said, well, he's going to get this kid. And he took a horseshoe. Instead of uh, making it cool, he put it on the forge. And the kid walked up and grabbed the horseshoe and goes, ah, and threw it down. And the blacksmith says, it's hot, ain't it? And the kid said, nope, just don't take me long to look at a horseshoe. With that in mind, I would like to say some, a few things that I've learned. Uh, some things I've learned in the 40 years that I've been on, the, on this earth, and some things that I've learned on a snowy night in December of 1982. First thing is, I think we should be proud of our youth and proud of our young, youngness and our young nature in life. And to say that, I think the best illustration is that it uh, goes through the four to four and a half years that we talked to the older people 
and asked them permission to put the heart in a patient and had questions and answers like, you can't replace the heart in a patient because that's the seat of the soul and the heart of life, and uh, it's not right to replace the heart. Uh, yet uh, the insight that Dr. Kolf and the ball that he gave me to run with was to do what you feel right about things. The best uh, analysis I can say to that is the, uh, is the uh, emphasis statement by Mills when he said this. He said, you have two choices in life. You may follow the crowd, and if you follow the crowd, you'll end up where the crowd goes. Or you may be distinct, and be, to be distinct, you may find yourself someday in places where no one else has ever been in the world before. But you can only do this if you be yourself, and that's the only way you can be it. But the important thing about that is to not be afraid to go out on your own. But to do that, you must be assured that what you're doing is right and feel very strongly about it and search it out in your own mind and your own heart and know that what you're doing is for the good of man and good for humanity and then proceed it with a power that only the youth can, can, uh, can, can bring. The other thing that I think I've learned is that um, the importance of the supporting systems around us. Um, it is really difficult to say uh, uh, Dr. Clark would have been able to do what he did without the supporting of his wife and good family. And I remember very, very vividly a year ago in which a young fireman was dying in our hospital and everything was ready for him to do, have the artificial heart put in. He wanted it. He was ready. Things were perfect. Until we ask, uh, what about your family? Do you have somebody that, or somebody that's willing to help you go through this a little bit? We realized that, that the support systems were important. And he said, well, he just recently got a divorce, and he had three daughters. We could call his three daughters. And I can remember the three hours that I spent on the phone talking to the, the wife, who didn't care whether he lived or died, and then each of the daughters, who could care less whether he was alive or dead, and going back and telling him that he was not a candidate for those reasons. And uh, very difficult. It kind of turned me inside out as a man died. And I think in our own circumstances, I saw Dr. Clark draw support from his family. I saw his family come together and, and make something of themselves because of what he had gone through. And I think basically that really the person that ought to be here is, is uh, uh, Dr. Clark who I think on a snowy evening uh, in December made the decision. And the easiest decision for him in his life would have been to die. He knew he was dying. He felt his life slipping away. But he wanted to do, he, he did this for two reasons. One reason was that he felt very strongly that he wanted to live. We all feel that way. But he said, I'm dying. I feel myself dying. I can't even brush my teeth anymore. I'm in bed. I can't get out of bed. And I want to know that if if my life means anything to me, by helping someone else, it's worth it. And that's the decision he made, and that's the gift he gave to us, and it was very tender as he gave it to me at Christmas time, and he gave it to all of us at Christmas time, and I think he's the, the one that really needs the recognition for that. Along with the support systems, I think that it was very important to me as I was going through very many black days in my life in three years trying to argue, is it right to attach someone to a machine? Uh, and questions like this were being debated back and forth. To have my 17-year-old son just put his hand on my shoulder as he was uh, going off to work and saying, Dad, it'll be okay, just keep in there because you know you're right. I think we lose track of young people on how what encouragement we come from. 
I think also it's important to realize that uh, my five-year-old son, who cried the day that he found that Barney Clark had died, and I realize the emotional impact that it placed on many of the youth of today is, you know why Clark got 100 to up to 10,000 letters from school children in Afghanistan, South Africa, during the times he was alive, and the, and the, the actual the cheering on for this type of thing. And I just think it's a, it's a wonderful thing that in this country that we talk about all the regulations and problems that we have to go through, but the best things are that they are actually developed for the human use and for the safety of experimentation on people, and that this was done in a country where freedom of expression was something that's so important to all of us. Well, thank you again for the honor of being here and, and be glad to answer questions. Rob, do you want to come up? And Yes, this is for either doctor. Um, obviously, when you put in an artificial heart in, into a person, you're prolonging life. But how do you feel about the issue of euthanasia and ending life when they're so-called, I don't know, brain dead? Well, well maybe we'll both answer that question. Um, I, uh, my personal feeling is that uh, euthanasia is a good thing if there's a way to do it fairly and give the individual the opportunity to somehow participate in that choice. I would give an individual that choice, and uh, I'd like to see that happen. I don't think it has anything to do with brain death. Brain death is a, is a situation where somebody is legally dead because their brain isn't functioning and their other bodily functions are, are somewhat intact. But, you know, the whole principle of the ethics involved in the artificial heart or, or many new medical procedures is, is the question of free choice of the individual to choose what to do and to do it without any intimidation. And the same, I believe, should, should pertain to death. We all have the right to end our lives at any time. And one of the big things was that we had a, a Barney Clark on a machine, and the question was who had the key to the machine and able to turn him off. And we felt very, very, very uh, well about the decision that he had the key and could turn off any time he thought he wanted to. I think we all have that. The problem is when we impose our feelings on another person, an unconscious person, and the question really comes in, is the patient that's laying before you unconscious or dying, is that something he really wants to do? And that takes a lot of courage as a practicing physician to turn someone off not knowing for sure that he doesn't want it done, but the family does. It's very difficult. That's a hard question. Over here on this side. I'd like to direct my question to Dr. Jarvik. Um, Maybe I don't entirely understand the situation, but I was just wanting to question the motives behind the development of a wholly artificial heart, what advantages it would have over a regular heart transplant, and why you'd do it if a person had to be within a certain number of feet of a machine at all times. Sure. Well, basically, a heart transplant is a very excellent thing. Uh, Seventy percent of the people receiving those live one year. Uh, Fifty percent live five years. People are rehabilitated very well. Uh, there is a limitation to the number of donors, and potentially no more than about one to 2,000 transplants a year could be done if every brain-dead patient in the United States were, were used. Uh, really, they're only doing about 100 a year of these procedures. Now, the need is very much larger. There are in the range of uh, 400,000 Americans a year die of heart disease. Half of those die in hospital intensive care units and might be saved. So you can't approach it with a donor heart. You can say we should approach it with preventive medicine 
And I think that we should do everything, and I urge all of you to not smoke and don't start smoking or stop it. But still, you come to a point where there is a group of people who, who we as humans would like to help. The artificial heart is one way to do one part of that, and it's going to be a small contribution to the overall question of heart disease. It is not really legitimate to view this as tying somebody to a big machine. And although for research purposes we started with a very cumbersome system, we now have working a very miniaturized uh, portable drive system about the size of a little camera case, about this big, that people can carry around. So the whole emphasis is on looking for a very good quality of life, and there always has to be a starting point in any technology. Thank you. The red shirt in the back. Um, obviously, the um, experience you gain from doing this will help you. And as we heard on TV, they said there would be improvements in the artificial heart. Could you let us in on maybe if some improvements have been made since the experiment? Let me give you an example of the improvements. Many people say you don't have the right to attach someone to a machine. When I started working in 1965 with Dr. Kolf, the question I had was, when would the machine be down to the size where a patient could carry it around with him? that time was the size of a Volkswagen bus. Yeah, I worked with him until 1970, and at the end of that time, I asked him, I said, when will it be smaller enough to the patient to carry around with him? And the answer to that was, well, probably be about three to four more years, which was the same answer I got in 67. In 75, I asked the question, I said, well, the machine now is about the size of a, of a refrigerator. When will it be small enough to carry in your, around? And the answer was three to four years. When in 1979, when I started thinking about putting it in a patient, the answer was still three to four years. In 19, and uh, when Barney Clark's heart was implanted on December 1st, 1982, the machine was about the size of this podium. And the answer was it will be portable in probably three to four years. In the 112 days that Barney Clark was alive, the machine went from the size of this podium to the size of a lady's handbag. And that just goes to show that that where there's a way and there's a direct need, it will be done. But if you don't ever take the first step, if Orville Wright never stepped in that first plane, we wouldn't have the Concorde. And the artificial heart today is a very, very primitive pump, very primitive. But if you don't take that step, you'll never get it finished. And that's why you, that's where you start with one step at a time. In the middle. <clears throat> Uh, Dr. Jarvik, could you give us some of the mechanical difficulties with your first six predecessors to the Jarvik 7? Sure. Yeah, actually, there were, there were more than six. There was the Jarvik 4 and a half and the 6 and a half, and there were a lot of little things. Um, really, the, the uh, question has been a, a way of making a very simple device that would function. And the, a number of the things I did involved matching a device to the anatomy so it wouldn't interfere with, with other organ systems. Uh, one of the things we gradually did in the lab over the years was to make minor changes in a small part of the device and see what that did instead of throwing the whole thing away and starting with a drastically new design. It was an evolution. I'll give you a good, a good example. Uh, where the heart is connected onto the inflow vessels we had a connector that had a relatively square angle on that, and we were finding uh, scar tissue grow down. It was called panis, and it would grow down and block the blood from getting into the heart. And this would happen after about six months or so, and, and uh, most of our long animals were dying with that problem. 
uh, we felt that it was related to uh, the release of a particular chemical from platelets that stimulates uh, fibroblasts to grow, these form scar tissue. But we had no way of proving that. We really couldn't measure that that was it. That's just what we thought. So we changed the design of the inflow from a sort of a square opening to a curved opening, just very intuitive to, to avoid turbulence which would damage these cells and release this chemical factor, which maybe that never existed. Anyhow, it took about uh, two or three years of work with it, with that minor design change before we had enough experience, enough statistics, enough animals to be able to prove that that minor change in shape indeed eliminated completely the problem of, of scar tissue development, which it did. So uh, I think that there have been a, you know, a whole series of very uh, gentle, small changes de developing the knowledge of what works, crucial to be able to test those in animals, and now the things we're working on are those areas of really practice of medicine, how to use these things in humans so that the humans really have a good life out of it. And I think that the, the most exciting areas in the research now involve that interaction of learning which patients to select, facing some of the tough issues there, and uh, finding out how to uh, ask those people what it means to them, what they want, where do we go from here. Final brief question, if we could, please. Young man in the white. Um, let's see. You've gone through several really strange situations, I suppose, where you're dealing with life and death, and is to either of you. Um, have you found that you've entirely reevaluated your your value systems, or you've made mo minor modifications and rationalizations, or or has there been re real radical changes that have, you've been forced to undergo because of what you do? I thought it was very interesting that if you were to ask me um, on uh, uh, the first, last month, last day of, of November, before we did it, uh, as we walked in the operating room, I would have said, well, now here, as we walk out, there was 28 people in the operating room, and, and we've been working for years and years at getting this done, and we realized that we were all optimistic about it, and what our feeling about life would be and our feeling about what we had done, I would say, uh, everybody was going to say, isn't that great? Tonight we beat God, you know, we've, we've done something, we beat the body, we're smarter than the disease, and so forth and so on. And as we walked out of that operating room seven and a, seven and a half hours later, it was exactly the opposite. You know, we really felt that we had been into something that was bigger than everybody in the room, and that everybody in the room had done something that was beyond their capacity as a human. And we recognized the feeling of, I recognized the feeling of a creator, and I realized that only for a short second that I had seen something that was bigger than me. And I felt very, uh, very excited about that, but very uh, awestruck by the, the beauty of the, of the body that we had just uh, been seeing. And, I, and that is something I think that impressed me from the very beginning of medical school. But it, it just realizes that the stories, the secrets that we're opening up into the body are just uh, very, very minute compared to what's, what's there. And I'm just completely struck by that. And I think that that's something that's changed my life and my idea about, about a lot of things about my existence. Ron? Yeah, I guess uh, I, I feel some changes have happened over this period of time, personally. Uh, I remember over the years that I used to do many things by myself. Uh, the early uh, work in the, in the development of this device, I would go to the machine shop and build the molds and build the heart and do everything. And um, gradually I, I saw the need to, to really work well with other people. And at the, the culmination in the, in the surgery there, 
uh, there really was this feeling that we were all working together, we had really done something uh, together. On the other hand, I think that the experience for me has been quite different than Bill's. Uh, we have a lot of respect for one another, and uh, I feel that uh, the change that's happened to me has been I'm, I'm really willing to stand up publicly and say um, this is not a spiritual thing, this is not a divine thing. Uh, I believe that uh, there is no interaction of God. I, I'm an atheist. And the ability to work in cooperation with someone like Bill who believes exactly the opposite and uh, do that in a very good spirit, uh, that is, for me, the most impressive thing, how, how well we all have been working together. Let me, let me just say, too, that an important thing in this, we sat down, uh, my wife and I were going to have a party where we are going to invite everybody that had been a part of this uh, that had seen Barney Clark and touched him in some way, and there was over 450 people in the city of Salt Lake that had done something to him. And if the, the whole sense of teamwork was something that is just uh, unbelievable. And when, when Rob and I stand up here and get an award for this type of thing, it's, it's really uh, not us that's getting up, but the, the millions of people that have put something into it some way. And the freedom of uh, scientific exchange that went on for 20 years before this development is something that made it work out. And the teamwork of all working together is just very impressive, and it's very difficult to do something totally by yourself in the world anymore. You've got to get along with the people around you. Thank you very much.